When all is ready, I throw this switch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Collected Edition comic book podcast, where we discuss the famous and infamous runs and story arcs throughout the history of comics. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and with me, as always, Ryan Reese. Hello, Singapore. Oh, that's right. I completely forgot about that. We're 23. Oh, 23. Yeah. Okay. Yes, we are 23 in Singapore, because I hope someday to be big in Japan. But... (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, today on the program, we will be discussing the 1993 one-shot Aliens Salvation by Dave Gibbons and with art by Mark Mignola. But first, we didn't have much <laughs> planned on what to do as far as our opening topic. So, Well, this is a dead, this is a dead period for news. You know, it's, it's December. <laughs> right. There's not a lot of news. Uh, so we decided about five minutes ago to talk a little bit about uh, DC's future state and what's happening in Daredevil over at Marvel. And maybe that will lead into a little talk about uh, legacy characters. Sure. Uh, Sure. So we'll see how this goes. We have feelings. Yeah, this might be a long conversation. We might be cutting to break any moment. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, future state, tell me about future state. Well, Man, I don't even know. It's, it's so it's the whole future state thing is is really convoluted, right? I mean, it was like under the Didio regime, there was the, this talk about like bringing in legacy characters, and there, I think it was going to be called Generations, or what yeah, or it was going to be Five G, I believe. Five G, whatever that was. I mean, it, yeah. was it really Five G, or is that just uh, Rich Johnston? Uh, <laughs> naming it as stuff as such i don't know but uh you know apparently there was this running idea that they were gonna just across the board replace all of sort of the legacy characters the bruce waynes the clark kent's the whatever Release. whatever wonder woman's name is this week um <laughs> wow well <laughs> i mean come on it's uh diana so the, there was uh, apparently there was talk. A lot of this was rumor. It was speculation. It was, but but generally speaking, I think there was this idea that they were going to just replace all of the legacy characters with younger or the proteges. Let's call them, you know, going forward. As I recall, uh, what Didio's plan was to have, you know, just a fresh take on all these characters. Right. Replace them with uh, the new up and coming characters sure. legacy characters so with with sort of i i think you know some of the idea was to shake things up a little bit of course there's nothing wrong with shaking things up a little bit yeah i think that's fine uh fanboys privileged fanboys might feel differently but of course a lot of that got scrapped well yeah anything that anything didio, didio and... anything didio inspired was thrown in the wastebasket yes but I think, like, so they, they, they had, I think there was a bunch of stuff probably in the can already or had already been written. So, of course, DC is in the turmoil that they're currently experiencing. Uh, they're, they're having one of those, they did this a couple years ago where they had like a, 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 a two-month reset period where they're basically trying to get their house back in order. And so they're using some of these ideas to have like a two-month thing 
Yeah, treading water uh, until they can figure out. Treading water, like it's, you know, basically, so it's called, they're calling it a future state. And so it's it's basically Elseworlds, right? I mean, we're just doing Elseworlds again. Where, okay. where, they're, where, where they're throwing everything in like in the future. And this is the future of, hence future state. Uh, where everything is the future of the characters. So we don't know yet. None of these comics have landed in our hands or any of our hands. But it's this idea that they're they're basically peering ahead and and seeing what the the state of the future is for in the DC universe and <laughs> <laughs> right yes 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 that's exactly what you they're see doing. what I did there pretty <laughs> clever right so we're basically getting two months of of speculative or what if. Yeah. I, I have a feeling that if it does well and if certain characters spark with people, that we'll see them be folded in to the main main continuity, the main run. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, like this is a special event, like like we just said, to to tread water until they can figure out a plan to roll out right. their real stuff, you know, quote unquote real stuff. And um, I mean, some of it's intriguing. I, I don't know if I'm, they, they have some really good creators working on it. I mean, there's yeah. some really good writers, some really good artists. So, you know, I mean, it's, I, I appreciate that, but it's, it's, it's once again, it's kind of going back to the well of like, well, what if we change everything up and we do these protégés and whatever. At the same time, over on Marvel's side, we have, and this is, probably spoilery although by the time this posts i think the news is going to be out in a in a major way yeah. but uh obviously uh <laughs> yeah i think it's already out no knowing knowing my ability to get things out in a timely manner yeah this will not be spoilers <laughs> by the time it comes out yeah but on marvel's side of course we have matt murdoch as daredevil is going to jail for two years and electra will be taking over the uh, Daredevil uh, mantle, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, I have not heard fan reaction from that. Well, I think it's just, so the comic just came out. It came out Wednesday. Um, So we're we're recording this on a Sunday following the previous Wednesday, because that's how how weeks work. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, and certain, certain websites were reporting this ahead of time. We all know which websites those are. And, you know, kind of presenting it as more of a, you know, for speculators and, and whatnot. And, mm. I, you know, the, the money end of comics doesn't really interest me all that much. It's like, but it is very intriguing. So we have basically, yeah. uh, we have this sort of, we have DC kind of uh, doing where we're replacing uh, the the known heroes with other characters and then like at the same time marvel is doing this big switcheroo with with daredevil yeah well that's uh, it's not uncommon i mean it's not uncommon and i think like at the end of the day i i have no issue with that i I think we're gonna kind of move into talking about this idea here but uh it it is interesting so all of this kind of happening at once and and the fact that this is kind of back in the news comic book news again what little comic book news there is uh, is it, it still it brings up the idea of does a character does does a superhero always have to be behind the mask or what have you the same 
always. Right. And I say no. Because the, the hero is a, is a persona that anyone can inhabit. Yes. So the fact that, you know, like just a few years ago, Marvel did a whole thing where they switched out Thor with, uh, with Jane Foster and they switched out right. Captain America with Falcon and Kate Bishop for Hawkeye and on and on and on. Almost their entire right. line was replaced in some way, way shape or form. And the, the stories, the characters were better for it. Because when the original characters did eventually come back, as they always do, you know, there's a new vibrancy to it. And I think that's, I think that's helpful. Well, we've had that, you know, I mean, again, this, this has happened over and over and over again. And they had Sam Wilson taking over as Captain America. Well, right. how, many times has, how many times has Steve Rogers been replaced as Captain America? Well, it all you're, the cap- you're the Captain America expert. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's not, a, it's not a question of him being replaced. It's him getting angry at the government and stepping down, <laughs> which happens quite often, actually. Every, every, it feels like every few years, there's somebody else taking up the mantle of Captain America. Yeah, which makes sense. It's because it, that, that's just a title and anyone can, yeah. can, as long as you embody the, you know, the ideals of, of that, of that mantle, Sure. And you can take it up. Uh, yeah. You know, Steve Rogers will always come back because, uh, you know, in the same way Bruce well, Wayne will probably always come back. Not probably, right. will always come back. But yeah. it's, it's, I think sometimes it's, it's weird because when, when there's a mask involved, it doesn't necessarily, you can put, you can slot in various other people into that, you know, like when Dick Grayson took over for Batman after, at the end of uh, Grant Morrison's run on Batman and the whole RIP and, and, and all of that stuff. And, but uh, you know, like Wonder Woman's a little different because. Yeah. Because she is that, that person. <laughs> right. And Superman is a little different. So, you know, so, so the godlike characters, actually Thor is a little different too, because you know, Thor's Thor is a little different. Thor too, is his yeah. name. It's, it's not really a mantle. It's somebody's name. <laughs> Um, at the same time, or, that, or is literally just a dude. Yeah. At the same time, that Jane Foster run was fantastic. Spoiler: We'll probably be reading that at some point <laughs> on this particular program. You know, and Thor has also been a frog. Yes, exactly. But I, I think it's very interesting, and and I, I don't. This isn't <laughs> that, I'm, that story I'm, was riveting. Oh, uh, <laughs> but uh, I. What I think is interesting is is that we see this over and over and over again, where and and I think it's different depending on the character. I think that uh, Superman being Jonathan Kent as opposed to Clark Kent is yeah. vastly more interesting than Batman being Lucius Fox's or you know the um, Dick Grayson or whoever is or is Damian or or Damien or whatever. Oh, Only who's the one with the giant spikes. Oh God, I don't. Azrael. Know. Azrael, yeah. Ugh. Oh. But continue. I'm sorry. I thought you. I one of my least favorite. Anyway, um, but uh, so personally, like, I, I have no problem with the idea that Batman doesn't always need to be Bruce Wayne. I have no problem with Superman not always having to be Clark Kent. With Daredevil not always having to be Matt Murdock. I think that's very interesting. And I, I, I think that, and I understand why writers want to do this. I understand why you want to change things up. And I, I think where I get irritated when they do this is it's always temporary. 
it's always like anytime they do this, you know, we're sitting here like, oh God, yeah, Electra is Daredevil. That's awesome. What a what a great move. But we know it's just gonna be Matt Murdock again in six months, a year, two years, however oh, long. It's not gonna we, be two we years. know Steve Rogers isn't really dead and yeah. he's gonna <laughs> come back and be Steve Rogers again. Yeah, to be fair, something like when you know, to when Captain fair. America was killed and Buck and Bucky Barnes took over, that lasted right. a significant amount of time. I was, sure, but because it was Brewmaker, right? But that that stuck for a while. But it, but of course, you know the the default character is always going to come back. But you know, think of someone like Wally West. Wally West was Flash for a long time, right? And it wasn't until Johnny Nostalgia decided to step in. <laughs> Jeff Johns and you know has to reset everything to the default setting. <laughs> but but I, the Flash is actually the Flash is a weirdly cautionary tale, and I apologize to Flash fans out here, out there who are obsessive, who have obsessively been able to keep track of <laughs> of the continuity in the Flash. I, I don't know if I have the capacity or time to figure the hell out of the flash continuity. It is a long running Uh, series. It is. (laughs) (laughs) But that's interesting to bring up the flash because that's a situation where I think a lot of the changes have created way too many problems rather than solving the problems because I don't know who's a flash at any given time. Now I, I don't know what era they're from. I don't know when which Flash died and which, which, which Flash came back. I feel like Flash is a hot mess. And again, Flash fans who are way smarter than I am, uh, they, they probably have their charts and their whatever, and they, they, they can tell us in a succinct way who is what, when, and how, and why. When I try to read the Flash, and I, I, there are runs of the Flash that are great. Oh, yeah. But there are times when I try to read The Flash and I was like, I have no idea. All of that said, you know, and maybe using that as a cautionary tale or what have you is, if you're going to make a change, you know, stick with it. The problem is, is this the fault of the publishing company or the writer? Or is it the part of, is it a problem with the fans who Mm. cannot stand to see Batman as not Bruce Wayne for longer than six months or a year? who can't stand to see Clark Kent not be Superman for always and ever and ever. Amen. You know, I, I, I understand the, the desire to bring those characters back because, you know, eventually there's going to be a new generation of people reading these comics and you want, and they want to, to begin with Bruce Wayne. So I understand the, the need to bring them back. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a tough call. For me, I'm a Captain America fan, so I always want Steve Rogers to be Captain America. I'm okay. Like when, when Sam Wilson took over or Bucky Barnes, I'm okay with that. They were, they were good stories. But when he came back, I was never like, oh, no, this is a tragedy. And again, you know, there's going to be new readers. I can't, they can't continue to cater to my demographic. So it's a tough well, call but in it's, my mind. Yeah, but it's the, there's that constant catering to a specific demographic rather than you know, it's, can you make fresh stories with 
Steve Rogers or Bruce Wayne or Barry Allen, uh, you know, I, I, you know, or Matt Murdock. I, I don't know. I feel like writers are excoriated for trying to change things up and introduce like an idea that a particular superhero doesn't have to always be the same. Right. Uh, we we could we could really get in the weeds and talk about like <laughs> the irritation of fans who don't like a character that they have grown up and loved being of a different ethnicity or a different gender. I mean, we've seen yeah. that over and over and over again. I think that's the, a, that that's a different uh, it's conversation, a different thing, just... but it's, it's it's a different conversation. But I think it feeds into oh, it's it's related the inability sure. the inability for the industry to be able to properly change who is representing uh, the yeah. the archetype of the hero that you know I grew that we grew up with, and this must always be the hero that we grew. Now you know the 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 opposite of what you're saying is uh, it would be Captain Marvel who has been taken over by a female version. Right. But that seems to be the way that they're going to go. And that's the way it's going to stay. But it's because the original Captain Marvel sucked. <laughs> so they put a new one in. That's actually quite good. You know, it's easy to stick with that version. Yeah. I think there's too many writers coming up, too many creators coming up in the world that when they grew up with a certain character, you're Jeff Johns of the world. Who, mm-hmm. when they take over a particular book, they say, I want my version. Right. the one I'm writing. Um, and that's always going to be the case. I, I have the feeling. Part of me feels like that might be the, to the detriment. But uh, people have really strong feelings. I don't have strong feelings. Again, it's two of my favorite characters. You know, it's, I grew up with Batman and Daredevil as Bruce Wayne and, and Matt Murdock. I grew up with that. That's comfortable. That's familiar to me. But companies don't have to convince me to buy Batman comics or Daredevil comics. I, I didn't stop buying Captain America comics because Sam Wilson took over. Right. Just, you know, and those, those were good. I was a, those were good stories. No, I, they're, they're great stories. And it's, I, I really wish creators could be freed up to tell new stories with new faces. I, I don't, there, there are good writers out there. there. There are some crappy writers out there. There are some good writers out there. There are writers who I think would have a field day with, uh, with being untethered. You yeah. know, but unfortunately, what, what they get is things like Future State, which, again, I haven't read a single issue of it. I don't know. Maybe it'll be great. Who knows? But I feel like, you know, they're like, okay, writers, go crazy for two months, and then we're going to go back to status quo. And it's too bad... I mean, now, granted, he did it in an alternate version universe, but Bendis, with his uh, Spider-Man run, creating Miles Morales. Oh, yeah, the Miles, yeah, the Miles Morales, that, that, that's a perfect example of doing it right. But again, fans could accept that because it wasn't the real... Yeah, it wasn't the real Spider-Man. universe. Yeah. Yeah. And that was supposed to be what the ultimate universe was, was all about anyway. Yeah, of being able to experiment. But of course, even in that offshoot, whatever you want to call it, they just went back to status quo again. So it's unfortunate. In the, in the long run, having these legacy characters, having new people inhabit these, these characters and these mantles and 
these titles, it expands the way that stories can be told. Yeah. And it, and it allows for so much more, you know, make things more dynamic. I mean, so I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. But in the end, I think it's always going to go back to, you know, version one. There's always going to be a new number one. There's always going to be a new number one. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I, it just, uh, it, it frustrates me a little bit uh, sometimes because, you know, it's, it's why I think companies like Boom and Image and others are starting to surge a little bit because we, we're having unique stories with a vast array of uh, humanity being represented. And they're not beholden to continuity. They're not beholden to like a continuity and they're not beholden to a bunch of aging cranks who uh, don't like change. Uh-oh. And speaking as <laughs> I'm gonna get, crank. I'm going to get in trouble for that. <laughs> yeah, we are aging cranks. We're allowed to talk about them. But yeah, uh, yeah. Look, change is good, people. In the long run, that's what it comes down to. Change yeah. is good. And uh, it's at the end of the day, it's healthy for the industry. Anyway. All right, good. That was, that was, that was fun. Moving on. Uh, speaking of change is good, let's change to a different subject. Shall we? Right after this. We are Venomaniacs is the Venom Scythe official podcast for all of your symbiote news, reviews, and point of views about Venom-related comics, movies, television, animation, and merchandise. We are available on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Google Play Music, and YouTube. Join us, won't you? And we're back. Paul, you had today's recommendation. What did you give us and what would you like to say about it? (laughs) Well, let me tell you. Alien is a 1979 sci-fi horror film directed by Ridley Scott. It is, on the surface, a basic by-the-numbers, base-under-siege monster movie. With one exception. The H.R. Geiger-designed double-mouth psychosexual phallic nightmare that would eventually be called the Xenomorph. The Xenomorph epitomized the idea of alien. It was unlike any monster depicted on screen before. Slick and greasy, animalistic but intelligent, and just off-putting in a way you couldn't quite explain. The Xenomorph immediately fascinated audiences. Its look, the way it moved, even its reproductive cycle. These things became subject of speculation, spawning sequel movies, novels, and of course, comics. These stories attempted to explain, not always consistently, the monster's origins, its life cycle, and the way the creature was used to nefarious ends. And the alien mythology evolved into a sprawling epic encompassing multiple worlds, multi-galactic corporations, and thousands of years. And yet, in the midst of all this grand storytelling, small, intimate stories could still be told. Alien Salvation is a 1993 graphic novel from Dark Horse, written by Dave Gibbons, with art by Mark Mignola. It follows the story of Selkirk, a deeply devout crew member on the cargo ship Nova Maru, as he narrates, unreliably, the aftermath of a xenomorph infestation. After crash landing on an unknown planet, Selkirk and fellow survivors must make their way across an unforgiving landscape to find a way to communicate a distress signal and call for rescue. All the while, they are meticulously hunted by the vicious aliens. And along the way, there is madness, death, betrayal, and even a little cannibalism. Through it all, Selkirk struggles to stay true to his fundamentalist convictions, to find meaning in the horror around him, and to rationalize his own feelings as he himself commits acts of violence and betrayal. He attempts to excuse his actions to God, 
while at the same time ask forgiveness. In doing so, the narration is formed not simply as a recounting of events, but as a kind of confession, and at times, almost a form of prayer. In the long, long history of the Alien franchise, Salvation is lauded not only as one of the great comics, but as one of the great stories. One that is able to convey the innate horror of the xenomorph and the political machinations behind the scenes, while at the same time telling a personal, character-driven tale. It's an early entry in the Alien mythos, and it's still one of the best. Brian, huh. what, did, what did you think of Alien Salvation? Well, um, so I think coming into this, I am not, uh, I, I, have, I have not been in Aliens or Alien or, I've not been a reader. Uh, so I'm <laughs> coming into a world that while I've seen three of the films, I don't know how many there are. Uh, I think there's, <laughs> not counting the Alien Predator once there's five okay so i've seen the first three but as a casual fan who enjoyed each of the different films so i don't so i was approaching this coming i I think each of the three films are very uh the the first three films are very interesting and i think very unique in how each director uh, approached the films uh but we're not here to talk about the films but that's the context that I have coming into this comic. So I, I really, you know, so I, I don't have the history in a strong way coming into this either before or after whenever. I have no idea when this takes place within the aliens sort of uh, mythos. Uh, so I was coming into this kind of as a, as a, a, a virgin of sorts. So I, I, I approach this as just a one-off and I approach this as a comic sort of living in its own world. And it very much can be taken that way. You don't have to yeah. know the whole mythos of the alien world. Yeah. So to me, it was, it was, it was a, an incredibly intriguing story. I think like you hit on the, the concept of faith, which is kind of what I took. There's the horror element, which was very strong, particularly towards the end. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think in your introduction, it's the, the faith aspect of it and the positioning of, of man uh, generically uh, in the face of horror and the unknown, I thought was incredibly well done. Kudos to... Dave Gibbons, uh, we probably best know Dave Gibbons, of course, as the artist behind the uh, 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 story that Alan Moore told once. And uh, <laughs> yes, he is the artist for Watchmen. Yes, and uh, uh, of course, Mike Mignola is an astonishing uh, visual artist uh, in his in his own right with yeah. a. Not long after this, he begins Hellboy. So you can yeah. totally the, see that style. Yeah, uh, With the world building, we, we should probably do Hellboy at some point or one of the variations. Um, Just do the uh, entirety of Hellboy. <laughs> <laughs> so you have two creators who I think are, are singular in their approach to things. And I, 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 I think Dave Gibbons, um, we, we see him later uh, this is a, a good clue as to the fact that Dave Gibbons can be a great writer 
and not just a visual artist. And uh, we saw this, I actually think Dave Gibbons' run on uh, Green Lantern Corps was pretty great as a writer. But uh, it, it's, as a singular standalone thing without context, uh, it, it pulled me in and it was incredibly well told and incredibly well uh, represented. I agree. And um, I have read more alien comics than you have, which means I've read more than this one. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I don't think that I'm an expert. There's, there's going to be many people out there who, who know, who are much more knowledgeable about things than I am. But there's, to me, there are two types of alien comics. There are the ones that focus on kind of the military and corporate aspect of it, you know, the kind of the, the political machinations behind the scenes and all that. And then there's the personal stories dealing with like, you know, one person or a group of people put into a situation that's just insane. And those are the best alien stories to me, the ones that focus on, on the character and how they are affected by these monsters. Yeah, when they delve too deep into the politics of the military or the history, I, I tend to lose interest because it gets too, you know, it gets too continuity driven and lore. It's, it's, it's so heavy on, you know, what is the lore? And this comic that, doesn't, I was never lost. Right. Well, that's the thing that it does is it just sort of, you know, it talks about the company. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we reference the company. So there are the politics, but it's, it's, it's not heavy on, yeah. on the politics. And, and by, I mean, generic politics, not what we think of currently when we say politics. Right. Yeah. So all you need to know is that there's a major corporation that is, using these or trying to breed these xenomorphs as a bioweapon you get that you know that's brought up in the original movie and it's brought up in um in aliens the sequel and that's those are good those are excellent ways to look at what i'm talking about so the first movie is basically just you know here's the situation and then there's a bunch of people trying to survive as this thing relentlessly hunts them it's a horror film yes this is a horror comic Yes. Oh, absolutely it is. But, you know, yeah, the first movie is a, is a, is a straight-up horror film, and, it's, and, it's, and you get to know these characters and how they are trying to fight their way out of this situation. And then you have Aliens, which is just a straight-up action film with a whole bunch of aliens. And, uh, and then you get into, you know, who is the corporation and why are they doing these things and what do the military do? And as much as I like that movie, that's not the kind of comic I want to read. I want to read more of the, the horror style. So that's what I'm, that's what I gravitate to. Now, that was a pretty long-winded way to say I like horror. <laughs> uh, but the real unique thing about this is the Selkirk nar- nar- narration and, right. and the faith aspect of it and the way that he uses his faith to excuse his actions or, find, or, or attempt to find meaning in the meaningless, which is another way of saying faith. Um, and the comments come in now. <laughs> oh, we just lost Singapore. But yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the actual story itself. The story, like, if you just look at it on paper, <laughs> which is how you read a comic. <laughs> Not necessarily these days. That's true, that's true. But, you know, the, the basic bullet points of the story are very simple. There's uh, something weird happens on the ship. We don't know what it is. And then there's a crash landing on this alien planet. And the people have to survive. Right. It's a marooned story. Right. And it's always one of the, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for stories to have, okay, you're crash landed on one thing and then you have to 
uh, make your way across a hostile terrain to another place to do a thing. And along the way, there are bad things that happen. But the, uh, yeah, the way, the, what differentiates this is not only that they're being hunted by aliens, but it's, yeah, but again, it's the Selkirk. It's his, he's basically praying to God to get him through this, you know, and that's what really uh, makes this, it allows it to stand apart from other, from other stories of this ilk. Well, the story is it's scripture. Yeah. And I, I don't mean a, of a particular religion, but it's, it's because it's the God that he's praying to, the deity that he's praying to is not named. No, he's a fundamentalist Christian. I mean, you get that from the, the final panel has, you know, a, a Christian missionary ship come yeah, by. The, or, yeah, or something that represents what we think of as Judeo-Christian. Yeah, we don't know where Selkirk is from. No. We, we don't know if he's from Earth and, and adhering to, like, sort of the, the earthly religions or if he's from... I mean, I guess we're assuming that. I, again, I don't know the alien... Uh, world, aliens world enough to know that our, you know, it's whether everybody is just earthlings or if yeah, they, they're all they're all humans from Earth. Um, okay, all right. Yeah, there are there are colonies and people spreading out because the Earth's resources are are used up and people okay, just. Well, so then then that does explain that. So that it's not he's like not a guy from a different planet. We are we are talking like Earth humanity. Right. No, yeah, he is he is from Earth and and he okay. says at one point in the very beginning when when we're getting to meet the crew and they're basically treating each other poorly. Uh he says he just wants to have a farm somewhere. So he's working and that's you see that a lot in these alien comics where people work for these cargo ships for these, you know, join the military just to make money in order to get off of Earth and find a mm-hmm. new place to be. Okay. Yeah, and then you have the company, um, the Whalen. I was about to call it the Whalen Jennings. It's not the Whalen Jennings. Whalen Utani <laughs> Corporation. Okay, but we don't need to know that. But that's not named. It's, it's not. It's the, not named in this. We, we I just from the lore of of you know the company that they talk about is this huge corporation who tries to use these aliens as a bioweapon okay. that they can sell. The great thing about this is we didn't have to know that exactly. And I think a lot of these comics could learn that rule. You don't have to go into the backstory and tell it. You know, all you need to know is there's a company. They're using these things uh, against the wishes of everyone. That's it. That's all we and need I think to know. Gibbons, Gibbons does a great job about uh, with, with bringing us into this story without having to go into like a, a, a lot of exposition that would like extra exposition would have confused me more than him just saying the company. Exactly. And just knowing it from, you know, having it from, you know, very strictly focused to Selkirk's point of view and allowing us to learn things through the characters. All right. So in the beginning, they're on this ship, something bad happens in the cargo bay. Um, The captain of the ship has gone absolutely bonkers. He's shooting the place up. He grabs Selkirk because he can pilot the. He's he's injured. Obvi- he's incredibly injured, and he grabs Selkirk to pilot the lifeboat, basically to get out of the ship, because right. something bad's happening on the ship. That's and something we bad. What, we don't know what it is. We um, don't know what it is yet. Obviously, it's in. Although, because of the name of the comic, we, exactly, we, we we may be guessing. If you're reading this comic, you know what the problem is. Yeah. <laughs> Is, you know what bad thing is in the cargo hold. Exactly. 
So they get they they escape the ship. The captain's gone completely insane, and uh, there's no resources on this planet that they land on. And um, and and then what happens? Oh, then the actual ship itself crashes on on the planet, like way across the other side of the planet. Which is which is oddly presented. Um, so we we have like you know the the, the ship crashing. Uh, we we don't see for a good long while, but we do have what Selkirk thinks is a a vision or a a godly uh, a d- a divine intervention because Foss, who is the captain, is losing his mind and I, he's about to shoot and kill Selkirk because he thinks he's an alien, right? And then what we have is the, this panel where it's like there's this bright light in the sky that Selkirk thinks is some kind of divine intervention that prevents Foss from killing him. It interrupts the, and, and, and sort of focuses Foss, the, the crazy captain, back to some semblance of reality. But we, we don't know that it's the ship crashing. What we, what we do know is, and what Selkirk perceives it as, is divine intervention to save his life. I think that's presented really well in the art with, because mm-hmm. everything is very dark, it, you yeah. know, yeah, uh, everything's dark and in heavy shadows and silhouette, very Mignola style of art. And then when the crash happens, it's just big, bright yellow that tells us something happened. And then well, it's back to being we don't know dark. in the story that it's the ship crashing. Right. We find that out later. So the, the crazier the, the captain becomes, the crazier Foss becomes, the more violent he becomes. Uh, Selkirk is forced to kill him. Uh, but of course, and this is what I really like about Gibbons, uh, he allows the story to, uh, to develop through, through us learning about the characters rather than us learning about the backstory of the, of the company or the, you know, or the aliens. We're not even, we're told nothing There's about no the backstory. aliens. Yeah, and I love that, actually. I love the fact that these things are just, you know, you either come into it with your own knowledge of, who, of what this franchise is, or if you've never heard of this franchise before, they're just big, crazy. They're just they're just frightening things, and that's all you need. So yeah, so Zelker ends up killing Foss and then eating him, thinking it as God has provided for him, which is it's just great. Zelker is constantly rationalizing his actions through his through his faith. And he kills the captain because he's possessed, right. um, and he eats the captain, and he says. It's okay because he killed so many. It's okay that I killed him, and he's providing for me now. Well, he it's, even starts off. I mean, right, right from the get go, uh, so when Selkirk is when we have the the dialogue panels. Um, you know, Selkirk is like, I've done terrible things, but he's done worse. Exactly. So it's okay. It's 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 fascinating that he continuously does that rationalization. He's not stable himself. But he, he, he convinces himself that this is God's doing, and that he has a purpose, that he will find salvation. But I'm not sure he's wrong. Really? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, well, we're probably getting ahead of the story here. I don't care. This is interesting. So, okay, we'll, we'll get into it. Okay. okay. So he eventually uh, works his way through the jungle, and, it's, and it's, you know, it's an alien environment. There are bugs. There are... He talks about being stung and bitten so many times on his way to try to find the downed ship, the, no, the Novaru, in right. order to try to, fi- to uh, find a way either to get off the planet or to send a beacon to, uh, for rescue. Right. 
And he doesn't know that the the ship has actually landed. He's just kind of trying, hoping to find it. Right. Well, he has, a, he has, yeah, he has a good idea that, that it crashed. He just hopes that he can find it. Along the way, he has some uh, genuinely bizarre nightmares, some really shocking imagery. Yeah, and that's Magnolia, uh, Magnolia yeah. all, all the way. I mean, incredible art. Incredible art through this whole thing. Um, oh, yeah, but, absolutely. You know, Mike Magnolia is, his, he's such a perfect choice for this in keeping with the, what you're just saying about the, um, the, the imagery. Is like, I, I don't know another artist who could have done some of this stuff as, as well as, as, as he did. It's, it's really horrific and bizarre, but it's so uniquely rendered. Oh, absolutely. It's a shame he didn't get to do, uh, you know, just a, a really long run on this the way he did Hellboy, because Hellboy has this same kind of imagery, this dark, hellish, uh, nightmare uh, style of imagery. And it's, it's just so perfect. He's for, a perfect artist for this yeah. story. Yes, absolutely. But eventually he comes in contact with uh, Dean, which is a uh, woman who is the second in command. I think she is. Yeah. So Dean seems to be the only other survivor. And she uh, arrives like a salvation. He sees her as, as an angel descending from the sky. Yeah. Which is also another really great image. There's so many things like that. There's just the image of her coming down looking angelic and her reaching out her hand as if she's going to give him a blessing. But then her, her dialogue is like, shut up, just shut up. <laughs> uh, so Dean helps him. They get to, to, to get to the main, the down ship. How do you want to say this? Uh, they, they end up getting attacked by uh, a herd of aliens. Are they a herd? What is a group of xenomorph called? Would it be a murder of xenomorph? <laughs> I'm just trying to think. It's not, it does, a herd doesn't sound quite right. A pod. A pod. A pod of xenomorph. A pod of xenomorphs. Yeah. Uh, so they end up attacking, and it's really, ugh. They're, they're scary creatures. Yeah. Uh, I kind of alluded, not alluded to, I, t- I talked about it in the, the introduction. These Geiger created something really, just really well, crazy. Well, oh no, I no, I agree. Yeah, it's again, it's you know, it's when you know about Geiger's art, uh, the 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 sort of aliens are make a lot of sense. You don't even have to have an old Dead Kennedys record to. Uh, yes, they're. That's <laughs> what I said. Psychosexual phallic nightmares. Yes. They are, they are uniquely alien. However, you, you, know, you can go look up H.R. Geiger's work and see what his um, influences are. But it is because of, those, because of that design that, you know, yes, they do have kind of, they're bipedal and they have a human structure, but they're just bizarre. And they're scary. They're scary things. And I love the way that Mignola, he renders them all in kind of these silhouettes on the landscape. They seem to be partly like, organically coming out of the ground. They, yeah, they're just, they're just scary things. Right. Well, it's really intriguing because he, he doesn't do a lot of straight, uh, straight images. No, they're all just sort of in the trees or coming off the side of the panel. You don't get very... There are some shots of, uh, you know, close-ups of the alien mouths and things. But, but overall, you just get this uh, dread that these things are all around. There's no escaping right. them. Eventually... They do get attacked. Dean is uh, basically eviscerated, and it turns out that she is she is an android because it wouldn't be an alien story without an android. Got to have at least one. 
No, they all they, that's a that's a thing. That's a kind of a trope okay. in all these aliens that there's there's always one android, and then that kind of uh, sends Selkirk over the over the edge a bit because this savior woman that he had begun fantasizing about sexual encounters or you know having a life afterwards with is now you know in his mind not real. The android is actually part of the company, so we're able to get a little bit of the backstory of why this is happening. Very briefly, um, there's an economy to this storytelling. So Selkirk allows her to die because he considers her not real. He, and, he, and he, again, rationalizes that he doesn't kill her because she's never really alive. Uh, sure. in the, yeah, in the same way that he can kill these aliens because they're not really alive, they're demons. And he gets, oh, there's this... Or they're alive, but they're the other. That, exactly. That yeah. must be vanquished. There is a part where he falls kind of in a... He falls underground, falls in a hole underground where he meets, they see a queen laying eggs. Yeah. And yeah. It is literally described as, as a descent into hell. Yeah. And then when he comes back out of that pit, he has a new plan. So what he decides to do is to, is to set off a nuclear explosion, basically by, by detonating the ship itself. In that way, he can kill all the aliens and himself included in order to rid the earth, rid this planet of the scourge that has been inflicted upon it. And that's basically the story. Now we can get into themes, if you wish. Okay. So let's get back to this thing about, do you think that he definitely has a divine mission? Well, I, uh, does he? I, I don't know. I, I, the, the story makes no judgment. No. The, the, story, the story does not dictate that he is wrong or right. And that's that's the thing about religion, and that's the thing about belief, and that's the thing about you know the esoteric or the the divine is you know it's it's the idea that uh, you know that uh, we perceive uh, that we are being told a thing, or we perceive that we are standing in for said divine thing and and speaking for or acting for said thing, and. Uh, so I I don't know I I you know huh. is 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 he wrong is is he in is he is in in denial or in a, or a fever dream or what have you or or is he acting upon the wishes of the divine? See, I would see it as he has these preset beliefs already. So no matter what happens, he's going to try to fit it into those belief systems. Now. Right. In the but long if the, run, if the belief system is actually divinely given. Hmm. That's it. Do we do we create God or does God create us? Right. Or does God create us or do we recreate God? See, I think that he, you know, he does have an act of uh, heroic, uh, you know, a heroic action at the end. He does find redemption or salvation with his act of de- of destroying the threat and uh, himself. And himself along with it, which is a, you know, sacrificial, he's the sacrificial lamb, which will. Or you know, he's, he's completing his, um, his purpose. Even that, you know, the whole idea of him going down into the pit, the, it, you know, it's his own form of the, the harrowing of hell in right. the way that, you know, he goes into the pit and then comes out reborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very Dante-esque kind of a thing. Yeah. So in the long run, his faith is the thing that gave him the strength to do this final act, which saves a lot of lives by destroying them all. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity 
uh, at the end of this. So what he what he what Selkirk eventually does is good because these aliens because the xenomorphs are just they're horrible they're unstoppable killing machines right but at the same time he destroys an entire planet now granted this this planet the way it's described this planet is just all ocean except for one land mass right. and that is why the company decided to put the xenomorphs there that they could be on this they could be contained in sort of a preserve yes because there are some uh, native kind of ape-like there's native there is native life yeah there's ape-like and they can reproduce quickly so that the xenomorphs can continue to feed off of them basically well and he does have like a, a moral dilemma about the native life at several points in the story yes he does feel bad about things there is there is a, a, a lot of guilt <laughs> selkirk okay let's face it selkirk's not a good guy at least he's not he's put in a really bad situation I don't know if he's good or bad. Is is uh, I guess for the D and D folks, is he like neutral? I mean, had uh, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I'm I, I don't really have knowledge of the. But you know, you know but we, but these stories, these these alien stories, when you put people in the you know a desperate situation, it's interesting to see how they rise or f- fall to the occasion. You know, right. and um, Selkirk really he doesn't purport himself well, but in the end does something heroic it's it's like i said it's amb- it, there's a lot of ambiguity here uh, he's not really seen as a hero but we're meant to identify and like him at the same time right well i mean he is the protagonist <laughs> well yeah and because we're in his point of view because we're in his mind we start to identify with him at least at least in a, in a, a roundabout way Right, as we would, and you refer to him as an unreliable narrator, and of course he is an unreliable narrator. I think all narrators are unreliable when they're self-referencing. And so this is all told from his point of view. So, uh, I mean, of course it's an unreliable narrator, but at the same time, it's all we have is this point of view. Mm-hmm. So I, it, it, things get tricky. It's like, is, was, is he trying to be a hero or is he trying to fulfill a purpose? And See, I, I see him being put in this. I think those are distinct things. See, I see him being put in a very horrific situation and forced to do horrific things and then uses his faith or uses, and uses, ways, uses his faith to, to make himself feel better about the terrible things that he has to do. I mean... Every terrible thing that we do is we, we justify at some point, uh, whether we use faith or we use, you know, the concepts of the greatest, greater good. We use philosophical ideas. Uh, but at the end of the day, we all justify what we wish to do or what we do in some form or another. And again, it's like making the distinction as to whether it's a moral good or a moral bad i don't know i mean he destroys an entire planet right so that had and all life on it so and all life on it but i don't mean to go all spock on us but you know the needs uh do the needs of the many outweigh you know it's well yeah so what he does is in the long run probably good but it's a morally gray area for sure I'm not, I'm not knocking this. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that that kind of storytelling uh, is the most intriguing to me. Whether right. it isn't just, he's, you know, if he was just John Rambo, just flipping through the jungle, mowing everybody down and winning the day, right. that's boring. 
this right. uh, having Selkirk be uh, morally gray is so much more compelling. Yeah, I don't even know if he's morally gray. He killed an Ada man. Sure, but was that a justified action? Because if he had not done that, then he would not have survived long enough to destroy the planet, thereby destroying the aliens, thereby preventing the aliens from colonizing elsewhere or being used for nefarious purposes. Yeah. So is so where where does that stand? I the reason I bring this up and you know I don't have any answers for this. I'm not a philosopher, but you know because this is about faith and you know as you presented it and very much strongly and was it necessary for him to do what we view as this horrific act to then have a greater purpose later and so then is was that in an immoral act well that's you know exactly it's it's not a question of that's what i mean but that's why it's morally gray because killing and eating eating a person is not it's not something we would call you know a good thing to do but at the same time but it was necessary to do in order for the greater good to be achieved does it become a good thing because of what follows well do ends justify means is basically what we're trying to get at again it's is it morally gray or or not you know i don't know it's i'm i'm not interested in eating people Um, i think i think you know you know something being gray and and you know it's, it's not black and white there, there is, you can argue, <laughs> you can argue for and against this particular uh, right. okay. <laughs> course of action. But, <laughs> but yeah, but I think that, but that's, again, that's what makes it mo- most compelling. Because when I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, it's horrific that this, it, that he's been brought to this. But, you know, I don't lose compassion for him. I don't lose interest in him. I still follow his story and want to know how it's going to end. It's just very interesting just to watch, just in terms of, of alien stories, stories about the, the xenomorphs. This is the kind of story that I really like. Putting someone in this position and, and watching a character, getting to know a character and then putting them in the worst position they could possibly be in. And then watching them and watching how it is that they react and how they deal with it. And Selkirk is, you know, he's definitely interesting. I, I think what is what is fascinating is like we're not really talking that much about the actual aliens. It's it they're they're a periphery. The the, yeah. the story that's being told is a larger story than because it it doesn't have to be the aliens from the aliens mythos that are there. It could have been a variety of different abject horror yeah stand-ins. Exactly. Now you know we have a preconceived notion of what these things are just from seeing the movies or just knowing pop culture. We already know what they are into the story because we're reading a comic called Aliens Salvation. Exactly. And there's little things like the, um, the captain is horrifically burnt. Yeah. Because, and we're not told this, but aliens have acid blood. So obviously he shot one, it splattered on him. Yeah. He's horrifically burnt. That's, yeah. But we don't need to know that. We don't see that all of that is off panel. Exactly. Um, but if this comic was just called Salvation 
and was not advertised or in any way, shape, or form presented as an Aliens comic. If this had just come out, like if Dark Horse just released this thing called, okay, we have a comic is coming out, it's called Salvation. It's written by, you know, the dude from Watchmen and this up and coming artist, uh, like Noya. Would, would we have would we have had a different idea as to what the existential horror was before we saw them presented on panel? With a few minor tweaks to the story, this could be a Hellboy story or a BPRD story, you know, very easily. Just uh, instead of having them be xenomorphs, they're, they're literal demons. Yeah. Or this could have been a land of the lost. Yeah. Again, it's, it's a very, you know, that'd be very, (laughs) Very, very, very dark for Sid and Marty Croft, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, but we're talking like an island. You know, this is, this, is, this is your typical, you know, lost on an island. You know, this is Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, there's an external, there's an external threat that the protagonist has to be crafty and, and make his way through. But, you know, but that's, that's what makes it a good story. Yeah. No, I, and I agree. And that's, that's what, that it's part of why I said, you know, if we remove the aliens from it, it's still a great story. Yeah. All right. So I think, I mean, I, I assume you like this story. Yes. I did too. Uh, this is actually one of my favorites in the, in the grand canon that is the alien franchise. If I have a criticism, I think the, some of the narrative in the beginning is a little choppy. Could have used a couple more page, couple more pages, just a couple. Yeah. His journey through the island uh, gets a little bit of a short shrift. Right. You know, there's, again, it's like, I get the whole like show don't tell sort of aspect where he keeps telling us the horrible things he's seen and done, but we don't really see a lot of it. Like I said, just a couple of pages of him being attacked by big bugs or, or something. Cause he or says, I've been bit, bitten and stung. Well, that would, we been don't cool see. Yeah. yeah. And, and obviously the, the, there are constraints in, uh, in comic book telling, you you have X amount of pages. You only have so right. much. And again, this, this is just a minor criticism of mine. Just me personally would have liked to have seen just just a tiny bit more of an expansion on the journey, like you said. Uh, but overall, really like this story. I think you know it's beautiful to look at yeah. and a gruesome. It's a it's beautifully I gruesome. Say, I don't know if it's beautiful to look at. <laughs> well, you know, horror can be beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It you know it might not make you feel good, but it still could be something amazing to see there's beauty in the grotesque there is so i i would highly recommend to recommend this to anyone who's interested in just a good horror story and if you want to get into the alien franchise this is the good good starter agreed all right so that brings us to brian this is your your recommendation is for uh next time on an all-new edition of the collected edition what are we going to be reading well we are going to be reading I think with the Christmas holidays upon us, what could be better than some British magic? British magic and Christmas, they seem to go together. So my recommendation for our next podcast will be Neil Gaiman's four-issue series, The Books of Magic. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, This was uh, done in like 1990, 1991 and features the art of John Bolton, Scott Hampton, Charles Vest, and Paul Johnson. Wow. Now that you say that. this is the original, right. This is the original Books of Magic. This isn't the subsequent series. This is the four issue limited series written by Neil Gaiman. Have we done Neil Gaiman yet? 
Yes, we have. We did death. Oh, we did death. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but I didn't realize it was that long ago. When I was, th- I just for some reason I thought mid to late nineties, but it's that early, huh? Yeah. Wow. No. Yeah. This goes back. It's nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety one. I think is uh, when these uh, published. Wow. Well, very cool. It'll be fantastic to revisit these again because they're they're classics. Well, they're classics, and it's it's an intro to a whole different world yes. in Vertigo, and uh, certainly J.K. Rowling was. Part I was going to say they had it had people Rowling in the aisles. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's fantastic! I, that, oh, what a good choice for Christmas! What a nice mm-hmm. gift! It's uh, not particularly Christmassy, but it feels Christmassy. I don't know if that makes sense. Of course it does. Yeah, it's you know the magic of Christmas. All right. Well, uh, that's fantastic. Can't wait to do that. Uh, So uh, thanks again for everyone for listening. We're always looking for your comments and feedback. So please send us an email at comments at collectededitionpodcast.com or visit our website, collectededitionpodcast.com, where you can leave comments on individual episodes or hit us up on Twitter, where you can talk to me, at least. Probably not Brian. (laughs) (laughs) I have Uh, a twit. Yes. Uh, But again, thanks for listening. And until next time. Keep reading comics. And rock on Singapore. You've been listening to The Collected Edition, a comic book podcast. The Collected Edition is a Daddy Elk production. All materials used on the show are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as online at collectededitionpodcast.com, where comments can be left on individual episodes. You can also send us feedback at comments at collectededitionpodcast.com or on Twitter at CollectedEdPod. That's Collected, E-D-P-O-D. The Collected Edition, a comic book podcast, is for entertainment purposes only.